Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, at Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, good evening. I know you're not in Liverpool just at the moment. You're in somewhere even more exotic, aren't you? Yes, I'm uh, I'm at St George's Park, which is the uh, FA's sort of HQ. It's it's where the England team and the Lionesses come to train. So I'm, uh, I'm doing some work here for the, the League Managers Association. Uh, and I'm staying in one of the rooms. I'm like, yeah, God, blimey, you know, Jack Grealish might have cleaned his teeth in this room, for all I know. And you know, it's 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 quite overwhelming for uh, for a dweeb like me. Yeah, let's let's not uh, let's not ponder on what Jack Grealish may have done in that room, Kieran. To be honest, I'm you know talking to footballers. And I, I, I did a podcast with Les Strong yesterday. Ex, oh yeah, yeah. ex Fulham legend, who it turns out is one of the most funny entertaining and interesting people I've ever met, albeit online. So if we can find an excuse to get Les Strong on a football finance pod, we will definitely go. He, we, well, man alive, he had some top-class Rodney Marsh stories. Anyway, enough, <laughs> of, enough of that. The 70s uh, chit-chat. It's Newsday, Kieran. Um, and the first news story is literally only about 90 minutes old. We are recording this on the Tuesday uh, for various administrative reasons, but Coventry fans uh, bundled out of the FA Cup by uh, a National League side, albeit in a very exciting game, have had all sorts of uncertainties in the past two years, but some news today that might might begin to give them a little bit of optimism. Yes, uh, I think this is a, a positive step. Um, it's been confirmed that uh, that Doug King, who's sort of a local businessman, who's also you know, a Cov fan, um, he's he's acquired uh, the, the the company Otium Entertainment, which effectively runs Coventry City um, from uh, the the hedge fund Sisu. Uh, I think Sisu have got something like fifteen to twenty percent of of the of still remaining. But uh, he, I think he's he understands football, um, so it's it's one thing which is out of the way. Um, the the other thing which is outstanding, and it's always it's something that we've we've mentioned on many occasions, is is the stadium. Yeah. Um, the stadium went into administration, as people may recall, due to the problems of Wasps Rugby Club. And it was uh, it was bought uh, by by Mike Ashley. Mike Ashley effectively had a period of exclusivity to negotiate for the stadium. Um, and I think the understanding is that I think Mike Ashley paid eighteen million pounds for it. Uh, Doug King was saying, "Well, I'm prepared to pay twenty five million, but if you've got a period of exclusivity and you've agreed a price, Mike Ashley was uh, was able to 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 bring that deal to its conclusion." You know, there's nothing to stop Mike Ashley now turning around to Doug King and say, "Well, you know, I'll cheerfully take 25 million pounds off you, and then you've got the football club and the football ground together, and there's not an ongoing issue in terms of rent or what's going to happen. Is it going to be a one-year deal, a three-year deal? All that we know at present is that that Coventry have the rights to use the stadium for the rest of the year. Um, I think for the club going forwards, it it would make sense." So you know, it could be that the two parties could come together. Mike Ashley makes a bit of profit out of it. He's a happy bunny. Um, Doug King gets the ground and the football club. Uh, you know, he's happy with with that as well. And, and and then Coventry can go forwards. But yeah, I, I think it's uh, for you know, Co- Coventry City fans last season or last last calendar year probably thought that they stepped on a succession of black cats. There was nothing but uh, bad news after bad news coming through. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's great news. Uh, yeah, I'm I, I like Cov. Yeah, it's always it's always been a good good away ground, both Highfield Road and and the Rico uh, or whatever it's called these days. I used to get very confused by the Black Cat situation because half my Irish family thought they were lucky, and the other half thought they were unlucky. So there was a lot of um, crossing themselves, and <laughs> whenever we saw a Black Cat, do we know much about Doug King? Uh, Kieran, I know it's a very un-English and indiscreet question to ask, but would he be able to afford the stadium as well? Do we know if he has any sort of relationship with 
Mike Ashley, because it seems that the only thing we really know about him is that he's a, a Coventry City fan, which I imagine is of a great relief to the other fans. Um, he's been independently successful that, that, you know, in terms of his own businesses. Um, he he certainly would be in a position to put in a bid for the stadium. Um, so it's a, uh, I think it's a relief. You know, it's it's great that he's a fan as well, but uh, yeah, being a fan with resources certainly helps. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a big leap, isn't it, from a hedge fund to a fan? But it's it's a good one, isn't it? But there's no we've discussed this before, Kieran. What would Mike Ashley benefit by not cooperating and allowing Coventry to continue playing at the ground? Um, there's, I, I think Mike Ashley, he had a bad experience at Derby, and I, you know, we we both know things that we can say and we can't say. But uh, he was certainly keen to buy the club and the stadium. And it looks as if you know, somebody or some people were not keen on Mike Ashley getting involved. And whilst he could have bought the the football club from the administrators, I think the stadium was proving to be a bit, a bit more of a, a bugbear. So having been through that chastening experience, I think he sort of said, well, OK, well, let's see what I can do if the tables are turned. Um, you know, Mike Ashley is a very smart person when it comes to identifying value in businesses uh he's he's got a negative side as well and i think that's been well documented but uh if he can make a yeah, six or seven million pound profit from owning a piece of property uh for a, a couple of months then you know he might walk away and say well you know I've, I've got guaranteed money coming in. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen on a longer-term basis in terms of the stadium. You know, you know, one would assume that Coventry will, will want to play there. Um, and and you know, he walks away with a smile on his face, having uh, having had a, a bad experience uh, not too far away in the Midlands. Uh, I imagine, Kieran, uh, that the Royal Family this week have had several unscheduled emergency meetings with only one item on the agenda um, and English football's equivalent have had a meeting this week with one very big item on the agenda. Yes, um, this is, uh, I think, a coming together um, in terms of the three bodies who are in charge of the game, the Football Association, um, as, as, I'm, as I'm speaking from their premises <laughs> uh, at present, I'm I'm uh, I'm doffing my cap. Um, the Premier League and the EFL, with a view to trying to knock heads together uh, in terms of how both the the national game and the domestic game are are going to, to go forwards. So there's there are some thorny topics. Um, you know, first of all, the Premier League itself. Uh, and, and I don't think the other two institutions are, are overly bothered, but you know, are we going to carry forwards with a 20-team Premier League? Um, the the big six clubs, um, which could become a big seven you know, over the course of the next few years if, uh, if, if Newcastle's owners are able to uh, to continue to, to fund it and, and, and to expand Newcastle United, they, they, they want a slimmer Premier League. Ideally, they'd want 16 teams in it. Uh, I think they'd probably compromise on 18, and that was certainly some of the things that were in both Project Big Picture and Super League. So um, the the other 14 clubs, uh, or 13 or 14, will resist. And and you know let's let's have a bit of self interest here. Um, you know as as bright as a Brighton fan or as a Palace fan, would you rather have? 19 or 17 or 15 home matches well we'd rather have 19 because it's it forms a big part of our season um the the other clubs want uh, more opportunities to pay to play uh, sort of exhibition games an expanded european competition and so on and, and that that would come at the the uh, the cost of a, of a smaller premier league and um a less competitive premier league as well so, so that's that's one issue. Then we have uh, the two cup competitions. Um, I, I thought the third round of the FA Cup this year was 
was one of the most memorable uh, for, for a long, long time. Did you? Um, and and the, got, the, the I, FA I, Cup I, went I, through I, a period I, of I, I being disrespected. What what happened? I, it was only three days ago. I've got no memory whatsoever of this year's FA Cup third round. Well, we, we you, know, you, you mentioned Wrexham winning at, at yes, Coventry. Uh, we Sheffield had Wednesday. Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah. Um, we had the the Leeds match at Cardiff, which had, uh, went into you know. Uh, injury time and so on. Um, Forest getting stuffed yeah. by Blackpool. So it was. It Stevenage, was. It was. Stevenage at Villa were absolutely yeah. fantastic. So, um, you know that that was really exciting. And sort of four or five years ago, um, a lot of Premier League clubs were were making eleven changes. Yeah. And not taking the, the competition that seriously. And and that has is not as extreme as it used to be, which which I think is great. Um, so so the excitement has come back from that. But um, we we still have replays, and I think it's almost certain that uh, replays are going to disappear from the third round onwards. Um, now, in, in in respect of that, could there be a slight redistribution of money so that clubs from lower leagues get a greater share because they are the biggest losers here? Um, so, so I think that's what's going to happen. That that will free up another midweek slot, which is what the, the those clubs who are in the European competitions want. Um, we've got the Community Shield that you know we we know that takes place the week before the season starts. Well, you know, the noise is coming from some of the bigger clubs is, well, you know, we, we don't really want to be there, A, because we're not making money, and, and B, you know, we, we could be doing the exhibition matches and, and picking up a couple of million per 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 match um, overseas. So it could be that the community shield will be, will be shifted um, in terms of when that takes place. Could could be shifted overseas. It could become an exhibition match. We we, we don't know, um, but it, it's certainly one of those things which is which is up for, for grabs. And then, sort of the the big elephant in the room is the money. How is it going to be split? And the EFL are effectively saying, well, we want twenty five percent, but we've got no negotiating power and it's you know it's been pointed out that if you go back to 1992 the the difference in income between the premier league and the 72 clubs in the EFL um was was not significant and you know i've i've got the numbers here the premier league has grown by 2800% since then and the clubs in the EFL have grown by about 550 mm. so you know the Premier League has has been very very successful, and the the clubs in the EFL have been modestly successful. And one of the the biggest errors in the history of of English football is when the the Premier League initially said we'll give you twenty five percent of the deal. The EFL said you know, two two fingers to you lot. We, we we're going to go it alone because we think we can make more money, and it proved to be. You know, in in hindsight, a, a horrendous mistake. Um, the the EFL now say, well, yeah, okay, we, we've made a mistake. Uh, can we just pretend that we'd said yes, and and have twenty five percent? And um, the noises I'm hearing, the EFL aren't going anywhere near this. At present, sixteen percent of uh, Premier League money goes to clubs in the EFL, but the vast majority of that goes in the form of parachute payments. The EFL wants parachute payments abolished. The clubs in the in the bottom half of the Premier League aren't so keen on that. Some of the clubs who currently receive parachute payments who are in the Championship aren't keen on that as well. Whereas you can perfectly understand, you know, the the likes of uh, you know Birmingham City and Millwall saying, well, you know, we'd we'd quite happily take some more money from the Premier League and we will, we're willing to be flexible in terms of you know how that money is spent because the the Premier League clubs are saying well you know the last time we gave you a bit of extra money the first thing you did was you just you spaffed it on wages so you know where, where's the improvement in football it's just gone straight into uh, into players pockets and you know we'll be talking about Stoke City later but you know I know Steve Parrish has said um you know what? Why should I, as a Palace owner, give more money to the likes of Stoke City, who are 
richer than God. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you, you can understand that his, his perspective. So th- there's there's a lot of self-interest. The, the other 14 teams also want the, the money, the extra money that's coming from the Premier League to come from all of the TV money, including those clubs that currently get money from UEFA for Champions League and Europa League. And yeah, clearly the likes of Liverpool, Manchester United and Chelsea are going, uh, well, well, we're not keen on that. So so we've got divisions within divisions. So there's effectively there's, there's two sets of warring parties in the Premier League, the Super League 6 and the other 14. We've got two sets of warring parties in the EFL Championship, those who receive parachute payments and those who don't. And then we've got the clubs in Leagues 1 and 2 saying, well, you know, if we're going to a better distribution of football, uh, so a bit better distribution of money in football, it's worth pointing out that the clubs in the championship get 80% of the EFL, you know, the EFL TV deal. You know, and we only get, you know, League Two, we get a tenth of it. And uh, League One, we get we get 12% compared to uh, the championships, 80%. So there's a lot of factions. There's a lot of disagreement. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's fairly well known now from from the briefings that we've had to the broadsheets at the very least, is that there there will be a white paper coming out, possibly by the end of the month. Um, the, the government doesn't want to get involved, and you can understand that because whatever you do, you, you, it, I think you, you, the government won't be able to grow the cake so therefore, it comes to yeah. You know, how do you slice a cake? And it doesn't matter whether you're the Chancellor, or the Exchequer, or the Independent Football Regulator. When you're slicing a cake, if you give somebody a bigger slice, somebody else gets a smaller one, and that person's gonna gonna moan, and they're gonna weaponize their fans up against it, and then yeah, the other regulator's not working because it's because it can't work for all 92 clubs simultaneously. <clears throat> Can I ask, Kieran? Do we know who initiated this meeting? And would it be fair to say that? Both the EFL and the Premier League would be perfectly happy if the FA weren't part of it because it almost seems as though they have nothing to to say in these negotiations. Yeah, yeah I, I think the the Football Association would like to be the independent regulator right. um, themselves, and and they have pushed themselves forwards um, as a suggestion. Uh, to the the people involved in in creating the white paper, um, I'm I'm not sure that they've made a, a hugely positive impression. So yes, I, I think you're right that that they are sidelined, um, you know, with the exception of the FA Cup and the Community Shield. You know, in, in terms of the matters that are being discussed, um, they are very much a, a, have a sideline, and and their role is different. You know, their role is that of uh, you know the the national team for, you know, for both the men and the women, and and you know supporting grassroots football. So um, I think I think they are at the periphery of this, um, and yet yeah, whoever uh, you know, whoever has managed to get all three parties together, then then fair play to them. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's going to be. It, I, I presume it was an awkward meeting, and certainly. Uh, you know, Rick Parry is written in the Times today, uh, and I think his final sentence was, "Whoever is the independent regulator, good luck to you, yeah. because you're going to need it." And I, th- I think that's, uh, I think that probably summarises the fact that not a lot of progress was made, and and uh, that there's still, uh, well, it's, it's not civil war, but it's uh, it, it's it's not a meeting of minds. <clears throat> Do you know? I think it would be interesting, Kieran. Uh, for both us and for our listeners to get somebody on, preferably from the FA, to to explain exactly what the FA's role in football is, because I think most football fans would would be hazy on on what the FA do, what they regulate, what power they have compared to the Premier League at the EFL. So that would be something that I think we should ask producer guy to um, shuffle off his gold couch and maybe pick up his gold phone and make some sort of call. We. Ali and I and Ed over Christmas spent a lot of time watching uh, spy films, Kieran, old spy films. It, it turned out that despite being married to Ali for many, many years, I had no idea that she was partial to a bit of cloak and dagger. And this next story, which involves PSG and Tottenham, seems to me to have cloak and dagger written all over it. Yes, it does. Um 
And like all of these things, there's probably more to it and less to it than meets the eye in the sense that the the Qatari authorities, who are the present owners of Paris Saint-Germain, following the success of the World Cup as a tournament, are now saying, okay, we own PSG. Uh, let's let's think. Where's the? What's the most popular football competition domestically in in the world? It's the Premier League. So, could we have a slice of that? Um, and there's been there's been talks that they've been in discussions with Spurs with regards to a a potential investment. And depending upon which journalist you read, either it's a minority stake, it's taking over. Joe Lewis's uh, Enoch investment, which is the the biggest shareholding, so that will be a controlling interest. You know, Joe Lewis is uh, uh, is is looking at succession planning. I think it's uh, it's fair to say, and, and uh, his shares have gone into a trust. Uh, you know, what what are the beneficiaries of the trust going to do with those? So Spurs would be very attractive for, from a QSI point of view because they're in London, you know, and. There's yeah, London carries an interest premium for very for very many uh, overseas people and overseas investors, um, but at the same time, uh, QSI is also being linked with uh, chats with the Glazers, uh, yeah, because yeah, we know that Manchester United is up for sale, and I think it is it's intriguing, but it can it could be speculation. Manchester United share price, which sort of flatlined following the initial announcement by the Glazers, has started ticking up again. Now, is that people putting two and two together and getting five and trying to buy in before a big ship, big offer comes in, or, or is, is is there something more to it? We we, we genuinely don't know. Um, Liverpool is uh, Liverpool's owners FSG. They are open to offers as well, though certainly the noises I'm hearing on Merseyside is that that's very much going to be a minority stake. They want to do. Uh, similarly to what we've seen with uh, Abu Dhabi and uh, Manchester City by selling off perhaps 15 to 20% and, and c- re- retaining control of the club. But money talks. Yeah, if, if somebody comes in with a, uh, an offer which, which you know, blow, blows them out of the water, then, then they are duty-bound to consider what's best. Um, so, so you know we've got uh, you know clearly we've got Sheikh Mansour with Manchester City we've got PIF with Newcastle United um could we have a Qatari involvement in the Premier League well it, there's there's certainly talk but then you say to yourself well hold on you know these are three fairly senior teams to which we're discussing mm. and the chances are that uh, they're going to be in the Champions League on a regular basis and PSG are going that you know, there's probably a 99.999% chance of PSG being on in the Champions League on a regular basis given given the financial advantages they have uh, in terms of uh, French football and UEFA say you you cannot have two clubs playing against each other um, with the same owners because Clearly, you, you want some form of competitive integrity, and you know, we, we all know the stories of the matches between uh, was it was it Germany? It was Germany versus Austria, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Uh, it? Was it called the, the Angel? I can't remember. There was, was there was certainly in a World Cup was a, a very convenient uh, match where uh, if you or I had played, we would look the best players on the match, and we'd have probably put the we'd have probably put the most effort in. Uh, yeah. it, it, it was it suited both parties. So, so you, you don't want that in in European football, um, and therefore, uh, I, I think there could be some concerns from UEFA. Um, but you know, we've got two clubs in European football with the uh, initial initials uh, R and B. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, 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 they've managed to persuade UEFA that they are not. Uh, not subject to common ownership, and it's it's just a mere coincidence. So, uh, just because we've we've got uh, Qatari investment, it, it could come from two separate parties. And if uh, if UEFA could be persuaded that those two parties are independent of one another, then then that that hurt that particular hurdle um, could be overcome. I know, Kieran, that you don't like correcting me when I'm wrong, but it's the only way I can learn. 
apart from being tapped on the nose with a rolled up newspaper, like a cat being litter trained. But I understand, and you may recall from the last pod that that's code for I haven't got a clue, but I believe that UEFA's threshold for what constitutes a significant ownership of another club is different from the Premier League. In the Premier League, you can't have more than 10% of another yep. club. And I think in, in UEFA, it's 30%. Is that right? That's 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 my understanding too. Right. Yep. Um, but I, I would imagine, yeah, but certainly if, if somebody came in and bought uh, 10, 10 or 15% of Liverpool, uh, that that would be an, a non-issue, um, I suspect, from from both parties uh, because the, the Premier League doesn't particularly care because the pre- what the Premier League doesn't want is two Premier League clubs who have more than 10% ownership. Right, and right. Uh, given that, uh, uh, you know, given that QSI would be owning Paris Saint-Germain, because if you think about the City Football Group, you know, they, they own clubs in, in Spain and Belgium and so on, and the Premier League doesn't have an issue with that. So it it would only be uh, if if a if an individual or organisation owned more than two percent of two clubs in the Premier League, so the Premier League wouldn't have an issue, um, and and then we'd we have to see what happens at the at the UEFA level. But with all due respect to the European clubs at Man City, oh, there's a big gap in class between them and City, and between mm. PSG and Spurs, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it means Manchester City are very much the mothership. Yeah. As far as the City Football Group are concerned, um, I think Paris Saint Germain with Messi and Neymar um, and some of the other people on their roster are a pretty attractive proposition in their own right. Um, and and you know, they're certainly in the top 10 most valuable clubs in the world, as are Manchester United and Liverpool um, and possibly Spurs as well. I think Spurs are, are you know, they're, they're certainly up there, uh, especially given the expansion following the new stadium. Now, Kieran, I don't think you have much in common with Barcelona president Juan Laporta, but sadly, he's made a prediction uh, just in the last few days that you've been making for about a year. Uh, yes, yes, and this is a prediction which I'm hoping that I am completely wrong. Yes, we all are. Um, he has just come out and said, uh, Super League, it's not dead, um, and it will be with us within two years. Um, he seems far more bullish that the uh, the European Court ruling will allow sufficient flexibility for an independent competition to take place. And he said that initially that competition will be effectively a continental one in the sense that the English clubs won't be involved. But notice I do say English clubs there nothing to stop Rangers and Celtic. Oh. Um, uh, and he says, yeah, after a couple of years, if it's proven to be successful, there will be so much pressure put on uh, the, the English clubs to join that sort of the, the opposition which we had a couple of years ago to the the Super League, which was a closed competition uh, and so on, um, it is likely to evaporate because... Um, English clubs won't have the same advantages that they have at present because you know the Premier League is bigger than any other league in Europe, and uh, you know the English clubs are also doing pretty pretty well as far as European competitions are concerned. So he is he is saying these things. Now there's there's a touch of there's a touch of Mandy Rice Davies in this, uh, and for and for those kids who are uh, of. of of a youthful disposition, um, Mandy Rice Davis was a uh, a lady who who organised um, uh, benefits for uh, high ranking people, including some politicians. And uh, when uh, when questioned in court about some some accusations about her private affairs, uh, she said, "Well, he would say that, wouldn't he?" Yes, and I, I Kieran, think that's Kieran, going to be the I, same with Laporte. Can I just stop you there, Kieran? When you when you say there are some kids. You might not know that story. There are some 65-year-olds who, who may not be aware of that story. It was part of the Profumo case way back when, um, when a, a leading politician denied having slept with her, and she said, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But uh, it's, it's, you know, I, just, I was just reading a good book about it just two, two days ago, and it didn't occur to me in a million years that we'd be talking about it on a live podcast. <laughs> 
indeed. So, um, you know, L- Laporta is is still keen on bigging up the uh, Super League. Uh, he says that there are many clubs still interested in it, but they're afraid of going public. Yeah, um, you know, and he, he could be right. He could be wrong. Uh, you know, we, we we will wait and see. Um, uh, but you know, there will there's there's likely to be a a more concrete ruling from the the Advocate General, I think, in the in the European Court in in a couple of months. Um, let, let's be honest about this: the the Super League will benefit um, a few clubs in Europe. You know, twenty or thirty clubs could could certainly be better off, and three or four hundred clubs could be substantially worse off as a result of it. Um, and and you know, depending upon which side of that divide you are, um, would tend to to help form your opinion, uh, especially on the continent where the the level of hostility towards Super League was substantially less than than what we saw here in the, in the UK. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. It's amazing how word association works, because I know the public image song was the other way around, but I've now got, I could be wrong, I could be right, going around on a loop in my head. Um, I don't know what this says about the Premier League, Kieran, but just as most clubs in that um, organisation are thinking twice about uh, NFTs, the Premier League are planning to launch their own collection. Um, It it does appear that they have they've been in discussion with the um with the organization called so rare or sorare right. i think it's so rare, <laughs> it's so rare. Um, I, I think i think it's i think it's so rare is the number of people who have actually genuinely made a profit <laughs> out of these uh out of these things um the the numbers that were being spoken about a year or two years ago were uh, yeah hundreds of millions of pounds it it now is is thirty million pounds is the the amount there that's going to be split between twenty clubs. It's hey, it's still one and a half million each, or is it going to be based on the number of tokens relating to individual clubs? We don't know. Um, so, you know, I, I I am uh, cautious, stroke, skeptical about the benefits of uh, non fungible tokens because. You, you're effectively paying money for a digital receipt. Um, now, if if you if people want to collect them, you know, I've said this all along. If people want to collect them in exactly the same way as you uh, collect, uh, you know, panini stickers and so on, fill your boots. Yeah, go and go and have some fun with it. Uh, but I, I've collected paninis for, for for many many years. I've I've never thought, you know, when when I've got bored and I'm still seeking for 
four Paraguayan players from the you know, the 2006 competition or whatever it is, I never thought, well, that, that's an investment that, you know, my my great-grandchildren or my grandchildren are, are, are going to benefit from me having, having spent all that money. It's, it's just a bit of fun at the time. And if it is marketed as that and it is not marketed as a potential investment, then then there's fine. You know, we, we are living in a digital age. Um, it's the nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh, you, know, you, you could become very rich because you can trade these and we are creating artificial uh, artificial scarcity in the market because you'll have a you know, you'll have a platinum uh, Lionel Messi card and a gold Lionel Messi card and a and a regular Lionel Messi card. Um, how those are being allocated, we you know, we would like to think that it's done on a uh, digital basis or sorry, on on a random basis. But uh, I, I was reading uh, about a, uh, a a very well known international footballer who. Uh, who, who went to? I think he went to Qatar, um, and he and he bought a lottery ticket there, and, and he became the winner of this. You know, uh, you know, six weeks after promoting the competition, yeah, amazing. And, and, and you know, th- that it was just an amazing coincidence, of course. Um, but you you do become a little bit jaundiced because there are an awful lot of scams out there. There's an awful lot of get quick rich. Uh, crypto bros out there who are bigging up the the benefits of these, and uh, you know the the people who are marketing the not non fungible tokens are saying oh, you, know, you you get you get intangible benefits, um, you know, and and it, I, yeah, for me an intangible benefit tends to be the word intangible without any benefit. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I've I've never felt an urgency to. Uh, be in a poll to choose the colour of the corner flags for a club, for a football club, and, and I'm not sure um, I, I could be persuaded to pass money uh, into somebody else's hands for that particular privilege. Yeah, so those of you who are wondering who the Premier League footballer is who went to Qatar and won the lottery, uh, it's not Gary Neville. <laughs> uh, he did come away with a lot of money, but it wasn't by winning a lottery. Uh, Kieran, a friend of mine, uh, or a chap I know, does the voiceovers for a lot of uh, TV charity ads. So if you're watching heartbreaking images of donkeys struggling to get off the ground, it will be his voice that you can hear over the top. I'm going to get him to do a special voiceover for you uh, and our listeners, saying if if you know the whereabouts of four Paraguayan players and the Panini card, please get in touch because it could change <laughs> a middle-aged man's life. Now, the next story, Kira, I'm not sure of the time scale of this because I, I struggle uh, to grasp time anyway, the older I get, especially after Christmas when I measure it in Baileys. But the the takeover of Leeds by the San Francisco 49ers seems to have been ticking along for quite some time, but it's hit a little glitch, apparently. Yes, Um the the 49ers apparently and i've not seen the documents and i'm sure many other people haven't seen the documents either the 49ers currently own 44% of leeds united with andrea radrizani owning yeah. the other 56% and there is by all accounts uh, an option for uh, for the 49ers to buy out radrizani in january 2024 so in 12 months time and that that is assuming that the club is not relegated in the interim period and yeah, they're, they're doing okay, but not spectacularly well as to date this season. Um, now, Mr. Radrizani uh, effectively acquired uh, control of Leeds for around about £45 million. And um, he he is a wealthy man um, in his own right, in, independently, by, by sort of you know, benchmarking against people like you and I and, and, and most people who you know, probably listen to this show. Um, in the world of Premier League owners, he's he's not, and therefore that that limits the you know his the amount of wealth that he can put into the club um, and the amount of investment. So um, he he is looking for an exit route, and, and he he's made some comments over the the course of the last week or so to say that yes, yeah, there an exit route. Perhaps it would be better with somebody with bigger resources to come in. And then we start to see articles in in the papers about a mysterious Middle East consortium 
Now, if I had a pound for every time I've read articles about mysterious <laughs> Middle East consortiums, I myself might be up there with Mr. Adrizani in terms of wealth, but, uh, but sadly I'm not. Um, so th- this could be th- this could be him perhaps trying to flush out uh, potential competition for the 49ers. Um, we, we don't know the the nature of their option to purchase. Um, you know what, what, what the covenants are, what the prices are. There, you know, it could be if somebody comes in with a bid twenty percent higher than their asking price, then he's entitled to take it, and so on. Um, but it, it's uh, you know, amongst Leeds fans, it, it's provoked a reaction, as you would expect. There, there, there are. Uh, they're they're a, a passionate bunch, Leeds fans. Um, some people uh, put it in the in the basket, uh, labelled B and S, and, and some people think it's more realistic than this. Um, but I, I, he he certainly now appears to be saying, you know, I, I've probably taken the club as far as I can go in terms of financial support. We know that Leeds could easily play in front of more than fifty thousand yeah. fans. Here. Yeah, a match. You know, it's it's a, it's a big city club. It's uh, it, it's got a, you know, it's, it's got that uh, that one city vibe about it. Um, and where where's the money coming from to to upgrade? Because uh, you know, for a, for a club like Leeds, that's probably getting match day income, probably in the teens of millions. It's it it wants to compete against. Yeah, Manchester United. Manchester United makes 110 million from ticket sales. Spurs makes over 100 million. Arsenal, if they're in the Champions League, will make over 100 million, uh, and so on. Um, and if Leeds wants to compete on the pitch, then then they need to be able to compete off the pitch, especially if we move to a new form of financial fair play, which is um, based on uh, income and wages, or, or uh, income, uh, which which leads to wages, as opposed to to the rules that we have at present. You would imagine, though, Kieran, that Leeds United would be a very attractive prospect. Uh, to any buyer, because despite the fact they're only in their second season back in the Premier League, they are a huge global brand based on their massive success in the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, they've got millions of fans around the world, much more than I would say many other Premier League clubs outside the traditional top five or six. Yes, yeah, and I think if somebody can can leverage on that. I mean, the, the biggest challenge for all of these clubs is converting eyeballs into hard cash. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, we are moving to a, a streaming age, a digital age, um, where I think clubs see more and more opportunities there. So so it, you're absolutely right. Under those circumstances, Leeds represents a, a very attractive proposition he bought the club for was it forty five million? Yeah. Um, I think realistically he could sell it uh, for you know, for ten times that and, and uh, you know, walk away um, suitably wealthy. Now we've already ascertained, Kieran. It probably won't mean that much to them, but Stoke City posted uh, a loss in the year to March twenty twenty two. Yes, it, this is a, this is a bit of a funny one. What what's happened here is that Bet three six five have published their accounts and, and bet 365 own Stoke City so if you if you uh, if you delve into the weeds which is what nerds like me do um, you they did separate out some of the numbers for Stoke City so Stoke City's uh, parachute payments have now uh, terminated so so Stoke um, on income of 22 million managed to make a loss of 26 which oh. is Quite spectacular. Right. You know, for every hundred pounds you, you, of income you're generating, you're, you're losing a hundred and thirty, which which is just a, a crazy set of situations. Um, and, and that's actually an improvement on on the previous year. But because we're to the thirty first of March, it's not the full football season, so we've not we don't know how much the wage bill is. But I suspect the wage bill has come down. Um, should fans be worried about this? Um, well, the simple answer is is no, because Bet365 continue to be uh, an incredibly successful organisation. Um, I, I estimate that the total wages uh, spent with Bet365 in that particular year is, is around about 62 
billion pounds. And, and to put that in context, it would take the, the Premier League 12 years to generate the same amount of money as one if, of the largest firms of bookmakers uh, in the country are concerned. So, um, Kira, did, did you say 62 billion? Billion, yes. Billion? Holy mother. Billion, yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's that's the amount of, of bets that are placed. Clearly, many of those bets win. You know, but the, if, if you if you talk to bookies, bookies normally have have a margin of around about five percent uh, in terms of uh, you know their success. So that's how I sort of uh, dug out those numbers. Um, you know, and and if we you know, let's try to put that in context in 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 the pre COVID years, that that was that's the equivalent of fifty percent of the NHS budget. Wow. Yeah, that, wow. that's that's indicative. Yeah, um, but yeah, you know, we people people in this country like to gamble, and also to be fair to Bet three six five, yeah, that they're not just based in the UK. Um, yeah, because how you know for many many people they they don't actually use the NHS services during a year. You know, I, yeah, I, yeah. I can think of periods of my life when I went you know years and years without without using NHS. But you know, at the same time, I I put on perhaps yeah, half a dozen bets in a year, and and clearly there's people that that are are more enthusiastic about gambling than somebody like myself um so you know the the gambling industry is the biggest beneficiary of the success of the premier league combined with the rise of digitalization and apps and smartphones and so on um so you know stoke stoke fans need worry not uh because you know, the, the the coates family is integral to Stoke as a city and uh, Peter Coates who who was ultimately behind uh, bet 365 he was a very passionate Stokes uh, Stoke fan himself yeah. um but I think this this also is indicative of perhaps a, a divide you know I mentioned a divide within the championship earlier because Millwall have also published their accounts they they lost around about 12 million and I went on another podcast earlier this week and said, well, in my view, Millwall are one of the best run clubs in the uh, in the championship. And yet you know, they're paying £120 in wages for every £100 that comes in. They're, they're losing a million pounds a month. And, and the owner, John Berylson, has said, you know, I'm, I'm effectively willing to pay a million pounds a month for a glorified car park pass um, at, at the new den um, because you know, that's yeah, that's that's the extent of, of limit. And, and I think this is this is the reason why we've got a divide in the championship is that those clubs like Millwall, who who genuinely would like to operate on more of a break even basis, they're up against the uh, the parachute clubs, and they're up against Stoke. Stoke have said, yeah, we we want parachutes, we want all forms of financial control abolished uh, because we want to spend as much money as as we as we choose, yeah. and you know, the amount of money which they could choose is uh, is clearly a lot. Um, so, so here we have sort of the financial controls that exist within football, uh, you know, trying to make it a slightly more uh, even playing field, but it, it does result in clubs losing money left, right, and centre. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to point out that our listeners may have heard uh, some whistling in the background there, Kieran, while you answered that question. Uh, I was going to pretend <laughs> it was the cat, uh, but the cat's asleep under my chair, and the only thing you hear from her is snoring. So it was it was actually Ed whistling because he's on his way out to the pub with his mates, uh, and that, that was his specific. He has three very specific whistles, and that was his cheery going to the pub whistle. Um, talking of publishing accounts, Kieran, there's a, a club not far from where I'm sitting who really couldn't afford to lose twenty six point three million in a year. Who've just published theirs? Yes. Uh, so here we have AFC Wimbledon um, and. Um, they they lost eight hundred grand, yeah. Which is which is it, it's still eight hundred grand. Yeah, it's 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 still money which has to be found every month, um, and and the vast majority of that they managed to offset through some player sales. So so that they actually had a reasonably good year. Sorry, um, were these accounts pre relegation? These these are pre relegation. Right, so these okay. are twenty one twenty two. So they will receive less money. Um, in in they they get eight uh, percent uh, of the TV money as opposed to twelve percent. I think we mentioned this earlier uh, from the EFL. Um, their income was up three million pounds. Partly was due to tickets, but it was also good to see. I, I think uh, catering and conference income, which 
I believe includes live podcasts uh-huh. of football finance nature, <laughs> contributed £800,000, whereas the previous year was a was a COVID year, and, and they made absolutely nothing from that particular source. So uh, it, it's, it's good to see that we are actually included uh, in AFC Wimbledon's accounts. <clears throat> well, to be fair, Kieran, some of us, naming no names, put a lot of money behind the bar that night, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Um, this next story, Kieran, is a slightly odd one, considering that we spoke last week about the fact that West Ham were probably the richest club outside the top six in the Premier League. And yet this is a particularly, to me, a negative story. Yes, I, I think this is a, a much broader issue um, than than. West Ham itself. This is all to do with the naming rights for the London Stadium. Yeah. And um, LLDC, who are the landlords, have gone to Karen Brady and said, look, uh, for £4 million, we will let you sell the naming rights for the stadium and you can keep the money, you can keep any profit that you make. Karen Brady's going, well, look, we've been here for a few seasons um, and we honestly don't think it's worth four million pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's a guy called Tim Crow, who's a bit, a bit of a guru, a bit of, you know, when it comes to he's been involved in these things in the past. And he's saying, well, uh, you know, potentially West Ham have been in the stadium now for a few years. And if you don't strike where the, where the iron's hot, because uh, okay, you know, right. we associate, uh, yeah, we associate the Etihad. Um, with a front of shirt right. and a stadium naming rights. We've got Arsenal with the Emirates, but it's the Emirates Stadium and, and the front of shirt. Um, you know, think about my club, Brighton. You know, it's the Amex Stadium and Amex public do the front of shirt. So I think Karen Brady would like to be in a position where she can go to a potential sponsor and say, look, I can offer you um, front of shirt and stadium naming rights. And the sponsor turns around and says, well, we're not convinced that, Stadium, stadium naming rights is actually worth four million pounds. So um, there's there's a reluctance from West Ham, and, that, and she said well, it might be worth two. But be perfectly frank, we're not sure whether it's worth anything at all because you faffed around for so long. Yeah, so yeah, cer- certainly pointing the finger in the direction of LLDC. Yeah, West Ham are currently paying th- around about three three and a half million pounds in rent to the landlord. But the running costs of the stadium, which are being borne by taxpayers, are £17 million a year. So you can see why LLDC is is trying to get some money back. Um, and this is the much broader issue of if you do host a an Olympics or if you do host a, a World Cup competition, um, you are quite often left holding the baby in terms of what do you do with that? piece of real estate um, afterwards because in all of the the glossy brochures which are put together by the management consultants when they're pitching to the IOC or they're pitching to uh, FIFA, um, they say, oh, yeah, there's a legacy. These stadiums will be used for, for decades going forwards and they'll make a lot of money for the country and um, and, and it will help towards the, the overall health. And there was a report uh, given in Parliament uh, last week which said, uh, you know, the, the health and the, the, the participation in uh, sporting, in, in sport, is declining still, yeah, um, yeah. you know, despite the, the supposed legacy that the Olympics was going to give. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a pretty downbeat story for, for all concerned, uh, you know, for LLDC as an organisation, for West Ham, because they're not going to be able to sell these on at a profit in, in their view, um, and also for the taxpayer who ultimately, you know, like, like all the best parties, there's there's a big hangover and there's a lot of clearing up to do, and, and, and that clearing up is going to go for a long period of time. I have to say I'm surprised by this story, Kieran, because you know, West Ham are a Premier League club. You spoke earlier about the attraction of London for investors. So I would have thought that £4 million wasn't that much to, to have, for example, you know, the Weetabix London Stadium would seem to me to be a reasonable price to pay. Well, um, what would would having that make you buy more Weetabix? Well, fair point. That, yeah. That's the issue. And, uh, you know, no disrespect to West Ham, their trophy cabinet isn't bulging. So it's, you know, when, when these organisations tend to cash in most is either 
if they are involved in the creation of the stadium, then they can say, you know, we've done this, all this for the community, and they get they get a positive return on that. Um, or if they're able to show their products alongside the uh, the trappings of success, which tend to be championships, cups, and so on, then you can see from the point of view of Emirates and, and Etihad um, why they're willing to continue that relationship. But you know, for, for Weetabix and West Ham, are you getting formal? You know, the Weetabix's marketing budget. They were saying, "Well, you know, we're advertising on telly. We're doing this." Um, it's it, yeah, and and then of course it will become the Weetabix Bowl, and people people be sort of mocking them <laughs> potentially. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, maybe if it was the Bailey's London Stadium, because then at least <laughs> they know I, that I would buy a bottle every time West Ham are on. So, just to be clear, Kieran, your theory. So, if if Steve Parrish, for example, were to try and uh, sell the naming rights to Sellers Park, he'd have a difficult job. But if Palace were to move to a new ground, he'd have a much easier job to sell the naming rights to that. Yes, because you, you will still refer to it as Sellers, yeah, won't you? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if, if you've got people who are as focused on the bottom line as the Glazers and Fenway Sports Group saying, well, we're not going to rename... Old Trafford, and we're not going to ah, rename yeah, Manfield. Fair point, fair point. Then, you know, no disrespect to West Ham or or Palace, it they've got a harder sell. Yeah, yeah, fair point. Our penultimate story, Kieran, sort of is about Newcastle United. Yes, sort of. Um, as you know, I'm I'm a big fan of Companies House, oh, and of I keep tabs on probably 250 companies. Um, which uh, you should get help. Have you ever thought of delegating? Because if if you've got an assistant, you could keep tabs on seven hundred companies, eight hundred. Maybe well, yes. maybe bug the Baroness if you Bob put her down as your assistant on a tax return. Well, yeah, but I still end up doing all the work. Oh, yeah, that, you, yeah. um, <laughs> no, to be fair, I was actually contacted by somebody this week who who has offered to be my researcher. Oh yeah. <laughs> Was this, was this from Mos- and- not from Moscow by any chance? Was it? <laughs> I sincerely hope not. Um, but you know, if, if, if that involved them having to check out my internet uh, history, uh, I, I, I suspect I wouldn't. I wouldn't want a researcher uh, for, for, their, for their benefit as much as mine. Um, so, but this is a company called JV One, um, which is connected with Amanda Staveley. Um, who is one of the directors of Newcastle. But w- when you start to, to unravel Newcastle, we, again, we go into these one of these sort of Matryoshka doll scenarios, is that uh, JV1 is linked to a company called Cantervale Holdings, which is linked to a company called PZ Nuco, which is linked to a company called NCUK Investments, right, okay. all of which are connected sort of directly and indirectly to Newcastle United. So, so the, what, what happened last week? was this company, JV1, um, it issued £14 million worth of shares. Now, the the structure of Newcastle as a football club is that PIF own 80%, Amanda Staveley owns 10%, and the Rubin Brothers own 10%. Um, this is mainly Amanda Staveley's company. So what people are saying, and putting two and two together, so well, if, uh, if Amanda Staveley's organisation is, is putting in 10% for £14 million into its company... It must be doing that for a purpose. So, therefore, does that mean the Rubin brothers could be putting in fourteen million? And if that's twenty percent, then you know, in total, is it does it mean one hundred and forty million pounds is going into um, into Newcastle United? And of course, we're in January. Newcastle are having a fantastic season on the pitch. Is this the James Madison Fund? You know, is this the uh, you know, is, 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 could there be an arrangement now between uh, you know Cristiano Ronaldo's new club that uh, you know he could go on loan to Newcastle United when when their season ends, uh, and could he therefore end up playing a few matches? You know, and I don't know when their season ends up, but so so people are are starting to speculate, um, or it could be that that it's just simply a, a cash flow requirement at Newcastle because. You know, the club has spent a lot of money. Um, you know, you know, Newcastle spent money in, in the last 
in the January 22 uh, window. It bought Big Dan Byrne, Trippier and, and, and other other players as well. And, and we know that uh, transfers these days are all in instalments. So it could be that that money is actually there to, to provide for the next uh, instalments in terms of players that Newcastle have previously signed. But it, it's, it, it just shows that you know, something as, as innocent as a, as a lodging at company's house, you know, I'll, I'll stick it out on social media and people will will reach their own conclusions. And, 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 I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to do this to, 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 for mischief purposes. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of what I do. Um, but so it, it, could, it could mean good news for Newcastle in terms of boosting their, their overall spending power, or it could be a damp squib. We, we genuinely don't know. Right. Our last story, Kieran, takes us to Preston and a cash injection from a familiar source. Yes, um, this is uh, the the Hemmings family. Uh, you know, we we spoke uh, that uh, that Trevor Hemmings, who was the was the majority owner in in, in uh, Preston, he he was putting in to the club about seven or eight million pounds a year. He was also quite a big benefactor, I think, in the horse racing industry as well. He and he sadly passed away. And then there was the what's going to happen next, and some people in the Preston fan base thought, well, this could be the end of things. But what we have seen at Preston is the uh, the family say, well, you know, as far as we're concerned, you know, we, we've been watching Preston with our dad for years on end, so we're Preston fans. Yeah. Um, and we are seeing uh, you know, around about a, a million pounds going in on a regular basis. And I think, to be fair, you know, most the vast majority of, of Preston fans appreciate that in exactly the way, same way that the vast majority of Millwall fans appreciate what John Berylson's doing, putting in 10 to 12 million a year. And then you've got the you know, bet three, six, five, the way it's supporting um, the way, the way that it's su- supporting Stoke city um, and sort of tying into with, with our sort of our early discussions as the EFL are saying, this is all great, but we want to move to a scenario in which uh, our clubs don't need uh, external funding or owner funding. We want that to come from the Premier League. And, and I think you know, it goes back to this this ongoing dispute between the Premier League and the EFL when, when Premier League clubs point out, well, if, if your owners are willing to put in money and they're putting in money in, why, why should it come from us? And yet, there's no simple answer. Look now, Kieran, I'm pretty sure... When producer Guy sent the script through this morning, that this paragraph wasn't in it, but like some kind of Harry Potter Marauder's Map magic thing, it's just suddenly appeared. Um, And it says that we are exploring new sponsorship opportunities at the moment, so if you would like to promote your product, your service, your course, or anything else to our tens of thousands of listeners, then provided it matches our values, we'd be very happy to have a conversation with you. And you can send an email to producer guy at guy at dapdip.co.uk. That's guy at dapdip.co.uk. That's D-A-P-D-I-P. And what Guy hasn't thought through, Kieran, is inadvertently, after two and a half, three years, we finally got hold of his email address. <laughs> yes. So we're, we're halfway to tracking him down. If, if, if that person who volunteered to do your research, maybe you could put him or her on to finding out where producing guy lives. Uh, good luck to Sounds them. like a plan. Yeah. Uh, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, then please go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And as I've just said, if you are perhaps interested in sponsoring us, we'd be very keen to talk to you and send an email to producer guy at guy at dapdip.co.uk. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thanks as always for the support for the show from all the different means uh, for, for getting in contact with us through email, uh, through through social media, uh, putting us to right when we get things wrong. 
Um, and of course, the people at Patreon as well. Uh, we're, we're very, very grateful. Um, another way to support the show is to uh, is to give us a review. To go onto that uh, that podcast app. It could be your your Apple Podcast or Spotify, whatever it is. Um, and uh, and to give us a review, give us give us what you think we're worth. Um, it, it, by all accounts, it doesn't matter what the narrative is. It's the it's the fact that we, we're getting reviews helps us in the charts. Um, you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Clint Eastwood and Armando Iannucci. <laughs> and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to us. We admit, myself and Kevin, our egos can cope with that. Uh, and the reason why I said that is because I was I was discussing my favourite Clint Eastwood movies with friends the other day, and we just realised what, what a fine canon of work oh. uh, Clint Eastwood has, and I'm just a huge fan of Armando as well. The, the, well, the, the only problem is, is uh, I know Armando of old. I'd love to admit Clint Eastwood, he was my dad's hero god rest him he, he dad's coffin went into the church to the the strains of the good the bad and the ugly but if clint eastwood was to say to armando do you feel lucky punk armando would then take 10 minutes asking him to define lucky <laughs> uh, but that, that would be a great combination that really would be bye everybody bye the I'm for the